My name is Kavi Chavla, and I'm your host for this episode of the Baton Salon podcast. If there's one word that describes the last 12 months and will dictate the next, it's innovation. On this episode, I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Beth Shelton, Chief Executive Officer of the 13,500 strong Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa. During our conversation, Beth and I will be discussing innovation and inspiration and how personal experience can serve as a reservoir for driving organizational change. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So, Beth, for many of our listeners who aren't from the Iowa region, we have global listeners, perhaps you could share a little bit about your background and perhaps even a little bit about the Girl Scouts. Absolutely. Well, you know, the vast majority of my career has been in nonprofits. Um, So, you know, for my 20 plus years, it's um, been a bit in higher education, a bit in fundraising, a little bit in the for-profit and corporate uh, marketing world. And then about five years ago, almost to the, almost to the month, um, I've been in this role here, uh, leading the charge at the Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa. So I think what's really interesting about the Girl Scouts uh, and will be really applicable to much of your audience is that as a federated nonprofit organization, and, and what that means is we get a charter from Girl Scouts of the USA, but so much of what we do is is uh, determined locally. There's so much autonomy and everything from software to human resources to innovation to supply chain. So much of what we do is hyper-local. You know, we're 100% locally governed, 100% uh, locally funded. So when we think about almost everything else I'm going to talk about today, uh, it could be applicable to any business organization for profit. It's not exclusive uh, to just being Girl Scouts because as a federated nonprofit, there's so much autonomy there, and that makes it exciting. There, there's, we, can, we get to be nimble and, and have a lot of autonomy. Mm-hmm. I love that word nimble and autonomy. I, I think one of the things we've seen for even you know, centralized organizations that don't necessarily have a federated model per se is a transition to understand how do you balance that centralized control with that autonomy, right? So perhaps in your five years of, you know, at, in leading the Girl Scouts, but also some of your other experience, if you can kind of maybe talk a little bit about from a process or business model perspective, how have you had to innovate? Um, and, you know, even reflecting on the last 12 to 18 months. Well, innovation is the name of the game, really, all, all the time. And it truly was the hallmark of our organization here locally for the last five years. Of course, in the last 12 to 18 months, particularly the last 12 months, um, you know, innovation is um, a must do for every organization because everything changed. Everything we thought we knew went out the window, everything. The things we used to spend our time analyzing and reviewing and creating policy around, we had to throw it away uh, because it's no longer applicable to the world we're operating in uh, with a pandemic. And consumer expectations. I mean, the ripple effect of everything that changed, right? Um, so, fortunately for our organization, we really had created truly a culture of innovation, and that means a culture of trust, of servant mm-hmm. le- leadership, of of taking risks, um, of being open minded, and much of that innovation paid off in in really big ways. Sometimes in our KPIs, our our really really big business metrics that we're looking at and and, um, reviewed on, uh, and sometimes in our brand, in our culture. So 
innovation truly has been the hallmark, I think, of Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa. Yeah. So I'd like to dive deeper in what you talked about and creating that culture of innovation, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there are two key words that you articulated, again, trust and servant leadership, Mm -hmm. right? So I guess on a personal level, could you talk a little bit about, I guess, your own personal journey and how though you developed those and then how you brought them to apply in building that culture within the Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa? Because again, that's a that's a key deficiency when we do look at organizations that have not successfully innovated, especially when they have external forces like the last 12 months placed upon them. The absence of trust in a servant leadership culture have been to their detriment. So again, I think it'd be really instructive to understand how you developed as a leader and how you applied that in the role of CEO. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. It's always hard to pinpoint you know, the, the, the few things that shape us. I can say with certainty that my path in my career shaped me tremendously in terms of um, who I wanted to be and who I didn't want to be. So we've all been, I think, probably at one time in our lives in a situation, whether it's with a manager, an organization, a team that didn't feel like the right fit, that didn't feel like the right uh, supportive uh, culture. And I've been in one of those. And And in those moments, I felt like a little bit like, gosh, why me? And this is so hard. And every day felt a little bit like a burden uh, because of the culture. But what I learned then, of course, you know, in hindsight, now that I'm a leader, I get to learn from that and say, well, here's what I don't want to do. Here's what I don't want to be as a leader, um, as a manager. And those are a little bit two different things, you know. Um, so, So I got to learn a little bit about what not to do. And I also had great leaders along the way um, about, you know, showcasing how to be um, supportive and empowering. Uh, the second thing is, is when I took this position, I truly, I'm, I'm not just being humble. I truly was a little underqualified for the role. And, and it's a very complex organization. It's a very complex role. You know, we manage uh, eight different properties, a thousand acres, you know, a, a staff of 120, you know, you're, you're I'm making HR decisions. I'm making decisions for a hundred different buildings. I'm making decisions about retail spaces. These are all things I had no core competencies in. And so when I started, I, I think what helped about that is that I was able to remove my ego uh, because it wasn't my baby. It wasn't my thing. And I was not the expert. And it was a little easier to say that up front because I didn't, I knew I wasn't. And if, if we could just remove that barrier, you know, get the ego out of the way and truly let the people shine who know a little bit more than we do and, 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 and embrace the collaboration of the teams that could unite, magic can happen. And I was fortunately able to step right into that because it was obvious, certainly to me, probably to everyone, that I didn't, I didn't know Girl Scouting uh, and I didn't know all of the operational things. So what made the most sense was to focus on the people and empower the people. Our org chart is bottom up. Um, I am the bottom person on the org chart. I have one job, lift and serve my team. They have one job, lift and serve their team. And ultimately at the very top of our org chart are the customers, the eventual constituents, the people that we need to please and serve. Uh, and if, if, if we can live that out every day, um, then we stay pretty true to um, operational excellence. I think that's a, a great image of, again, a bottom-up of really servant leadership, right? Is where you flip the, the org chart on its head, right? Mm. And you put the leader at the bottom as kind of that foundation 
that then empowers up. I really love that image. Um, now, can you talk about, because again, under your leadership, the Girl Scouts have, have certainly grown. Um, and again, you know, for membership-based organizations where, again, especially for children, where close physical contact and experience is the driving aspect of, you know, your experience, what you deliver, your product, right? How did you, I guess, how did you approach, think about, and then to be honest, successfully apply change to your model of membership kind of, you know, as a result of COVID, right? How did you navigate that? Yeah, it's, it's been very difficult. I certainly don't want to sugarcoat it and say that uh, it's been in any way, you know, um, easy because we are an organization that really thrives on human connection. And if we think about the last year, human connection, what does that even mean now? Because it means something entirely different than, than we thought it meant. So we had to just, you know, pivot continuously. Talk about decision fatigue, right? W within the first month, I was feeling that. Within, you know, March of 2020, I was feeling that. Uh, not only about um, the people we serve, our, our, our thousands of members and the way they connect, but our staff, our team, how do we keep them safe? How do we operate? What should we be doing? How do we do it? You know, every day we have been making decisions where there's no clear right answer. You know, make the very best decision possible today uh, with the compass we have. And the compass we have is probably different than the compass you have and the compass other organizations have. So we had to first really step back and say, what is our compass? What's our true north? How do we make decisions moving forward from that? And we decided our true north was doing right by people. And even that sounds a little vague. So as we've evolved in the last 12 months, I really now sort of, sort of pare it down and think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I would have said a year ago, we were operating really closely in that highest tier that, that let's, let's get people really fulfilling their self-esteem and their ego and all of mm -hmm. the things th that give them self-actualization. And now we're already back, you know, down to the first tier. How do we keep, how do we create processes and programs that keep people safe, that give them a feeling of uh, security and, and, and you can't operate, I, I, I think today, uh, you, you could not operate successfully in an organization trying to presume you could be up in tier five or at the very top of the pyramid for Maslow um, if you're not doing those things on, on tiers one and two. So we had to really strip it back. And we've been very transparent with not only our staff, but our membership about mm -hmm. what that means for safety and security and what it means, um, not just for you know, physically being with other people, but think about, think about your teams, your staff members. What does that mean for financial security? Financial security means food and shelter. And that's all the way down there on those baseline needs. So we have to be transparent about our, our budgetary outlook, our financial outlook as an organization, if we want people to feel secure in those areas. And only then can we operate higher on the pyramid. So we were really transparent with our staff and also with our members, you know, like it was a, a close knit family of 14,000 people on a lot of <laughs> private Facebook lives. Here's the status, here's where we are, here's what it means, uh, here are the implications. But then operationally, we had to figure out what that meant, right? So it, it meant figuring out the very best way possible to give the people what they, what they desired, which was human connection. And for several months, it meant virtual meetings only. And then we paid for or subsidized, you know, Zoom licenses for troops and, and things that could help them connect with one another. And we, we pivoted really quickly. We, of course, were not able to have resident camp last summer. And resident camp, you know, where girls go off to camp and do everything from high ropes to, to axe throwing, 
Um, it's a big part of being a Girl Scout. It's a big part of why uh, parents and girls sign up and we couldn't do it. Of course, we couldn't do it safely, right? Right. Um, and so we had to pivot quickly and we created a, a camp subscription box. It was four different boxes that came out over the four months of the summer and they got to their doorstep. But that created, I mean, that was a manual process of sourcing materials, which was mm-hmm. not easy uh, at this time. Um, you know, if you're trying to source a high volume of anything right now uh, due to, you know, shipping constraints, et cetera, yep. it's, it's problematic. It's difficult and make it engaging and then supplement with a hybrid. What we found is virtual only was not the answer. Hybrid had to be the answer. Um, Our people wanted something on their doorstep and then a Zoom to supplement, right? We couldn't just do Zoom. It's not enough. People have Zoom fatigue um, and uh, particularly kids. When you think about why they're here, uh, fun, courage, confidence, social, emotional intelligence, Zoom alone is not gonna cut it. Uh, So we had to really get creative on how do we supplement with something in person? So how, I guess, kind of reflecting on your journey up to the point of, you know, joining as CEO of the the Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa, I guess, what did you draw upon, especially given the need to innovate? And, you know, as you talked about, the supply chain problem was huge for all organizations, right? So how did you solve that particular challenge and, and how did you successfully, you know, kind of develop a process to ensure you could meet kind of that hybrid model that you recognized was the the right fit for your your Girl Scouts? Yeah, when we think about supply chain, uh, it's one of the many things that was not in my list of core competencies five years ago. And now it's pretty high on the list of things I have to do. So I don't know if people fully understand how complex the cookie program is, and it varies across the country. For us, it's a direct sale program, which means we purchase upfront millions of boxes of cookies from our bakery. And we put them in three central warehouses. From there, they go to 30 other warehouses across the state. And from there, they go to about a thousand troop leaders. From there, they go to about 14,000 households, right? And every single week, it's about an eight week program. Every single week, the inventory is changing. Uh, We have nine flavors, nine SKUs in the mix. So we are trying to constantly manage, how do we make sure we have the uh, the right mix of those nine SKUs in these 30 locations so they can get to the 14,000 households. Okay, so our supply chain was really built to go one direction, get from the bakery to the people. And when when COVID hit uh, last year in central Iowa, certainly uh, it was mid-March, which was in smack dab in the middle of the cookie program. And um, that's really problematic. (laughs) Uh, When you think about, we pay upfront for a product uh, and then we push it out to all the people and all, all of the, the troops and the parents and the girls. Uh, and then eventually all the product gets sold and the cash comes back, okay? So this, uh, this came to a screeching halt um, for much of the world and for us as well. And it was really, really uh, problematic. And we learned a lot about supply chain. Here's one of the lessons I learned. First of all, um, a, a one-way supply chain is a little bit problematic inherently because um, if and when you have to get product back, we didn't know where it was. Um, we don't have some sort of like tracking system to know exactly where it is. We know from the troop level, so th- there's a thousand troops, but from there it goes to 14,000 households. Mm-hmm. So between 1,000 and 14,000, it was in wagons in garages, right? That's not a scientific method to say, how do we get that back? How could we sell that product if it's in 14,000 places? So that that was problematic. But we really had to think about like what what do we know is true? And this is now one of my favorite questions. Here's what we knew. We knew we had Girl Scout cookies out in the field somewhere, you know, lots of somewheres. And we knew consumers wanted them. 
And we told ourselves a story for a week or so. Look, I was in, I was in a slump, like many leaders in the middle of March last year, like a lot of things coming at me, a lot of decisions to make. And we, we, we could have easily said, this is a wash. There's no way to sell these cookies, right? Um, because we can't have cookie booths and the whole, the whole world has come to a halt. But what do we actually know is true? That wasn't true. It wasn't true that we couldn't sell those tr- cookies. Here's what we knew was true. What was true is we had cookies and consumers wanted cookies. The only thing that was broken was the final piece in the supply chain, which is cookie booths. Those girls sitting in front of retailers at a table, that, pe- that little tiny piece in this giant supply chain was broken. So what do we really know is true? It's not that people don't want cookies. It's not that people weren't willing to be philanthropic. It's not that people didn't want to eat. It's that we couldn't get that last piece figured out. So then we had to innovate. And when you were backed into a corner, what a gift, like what a gift, what a time to say, okay, you know, my favorite phrase now that I had never heard a year ago and I, 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 it's, it should be plastered everywhere is that being the case, how shall we proceed? Right? Like, it is the case that we are in a pandemic and it is the case uh, that all of our, um, you know, uh, $10 million of inventory is out in the field in wagons. Okay. That being the case, what are we going to do about it? Right. How shall we proceed? Yeah. And so how, to, yeah. how did you solve that last mile delivery? Right. Cause that you think about that's, I think about broadband in Iowa. I think about right. energy, right. It's that last mile that you've hit on uh, that's key. Right. So yeah. How did you, you solve that last mile delivery? We solved it a lot of ways. So, so a couple of things we did. First of all, we've now partnered with Grubhub. So if you think about supply chain, if we have cookies and consumers want cookies, but we're not sure if that piece in the middle of, of girls um, being at a table at a retailer safe, what like where else are people getting their goods? And there are places people are getting their goods, right? They're getting them at retail outlets. Uh, and we had cookies in some retail outlets. You know, that can be problematic um, in terms of our mission delivery, the way we have girls really um, live out the mission of being part of the mm-hmm. cookie program. But the Grubhub partnership, talk about innovative. So girls are working behind the scenes at warehouses, fulfilling every single order that comes in. And all that's different is instead of them and their and their guardian driving those cookies to the consumer, um, a, a Grubhub driver is driving them. And now we have a great national partnership. So that's one way. Uh, making it easy um, for, for consumers to make a contactless payment. And, and that doesn't seem like a big deal when we live in this sort of Amazon Prime world, but it is a big deal when you're a nonprofit, right? You, mm-hmm. the, the software, the infrastructure uh, to get these financial services behind the scenes. Every single Girl Scout can take a payment now online or on a smartphone from any consumer. Every single Girl Scout, millions of members, you know? So right here are 14,000 members. They can take a payment and they can drop those cookies off on your doorstep without ever coming into contact with their eventual customer. So it's not true that you have to be knocking on someone's door to sell a cookie and be involved. It is true that if we, you know, if we provide some infrastructure um, in that supply chain and in that payment system uh, for girls to succeed, they will step up and succeed. And that's exactly what we had to do. We were forced to do it. Um, and it, the results have been amazing. Yeah, that's that's amazing innovation. I mean, it, you know, just the complexity of the system you have to solve and uh, and your ability to adapt and pivot. Um, how much of that was driven by local solutioning? How much of it were you able to kind of bring together, you know, the other um, kind of statewide organizations, you know, given that federated model? Yeah, 
I would say it's always a combination, always. Um, we tend to lean a little bit more on the more innovative and risk-taking side here, here locally, mm -hmm. right? Due to all the factors we already talked about. Uh, so, but I also, it, there's, a, there's a great conduit, you know, a great um, mechanism to take those great ideas back to the national team. And I get to be part of a few really strategic national teams. We get to share some ideas. We like to talk about best practices. The problem with innovation is you don't always know what the result is if it's going to be a best practice while you're doing it. It's like we're, you know, we're sailing the ship while we're building it, you know, yep. so we don't know for sure if this is a great idea and if the result will be great. But sometimes we just have to keep pushing and say, this seems to be going well. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and let everyone across the country um, all the states, all the councils, let's let them know that this, this idea has potential. Uh, and that's a little bit risky, you know, mm -hmm. and, and big national organizations are a little bit risk averse for good reason. That's why they've been around for more than a century, right? That they're, they're really strategic, they're really smart, and a little bit risk averse is okay. So I almost think the federated model is uh, lends itself to great innovation because we get to sort of, if you think about it like a pilot on a small scale, one state gets to try this out and really push it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've got a lot of skin in the game to make sure it works because this is my baby. You know, this state is my baby. But right. if it works out and it's going okay, then we can share it on the larger scale. Perfect. So speaking of risk and innovation, so, you know, a little earlier in the conversation, you said, you know, the words, there's no clear right answer. Right. So thinking about no clear right answer, um, you know, there's s'mores or thin mints, there's lemonade cookies. So, you know, you shared that you sit on the cookie innovation committee. Right? Yes, so I'd love to hear from you about how, yeah, just kind of the data driven approach and the process by which the Girl Scouts innovate when it comes to cookies. Because I think you mentioned it's a billion dollars, give or take, in revenue for the Girl yes. Scouts. I mean, that's it's a huge enterprise. It really is. So we are, you know, we're right up there uh, in those six or eight weeks, you know, we're competing, if not the best seller of all cookie brands in the country, you know, so uh, it's nearly a billion dollar program nationwide. Uh, and yes, I do. I do have the, um, the luxury of sitting on the National Cookie Innovation uh, Committee. And that does mean, I mean, talk about a dream job description. I get to literally taste cookie concepts and give feedback and say, you know, maybe a little more frosting, maybe a little more nutmeg, you know? So it's, first of all, it is a lot of fun, but in, in truth, we are also talking about constantly, um, you know, think about uh, food allergens, um, sustainable packaging, um, you know, payment processing, the software, the infrastructure, de delivery, fulfillment, uh, shipping. There's so many uh, components of cookie innovation that are critical. The flavors are actually probably the smallest piece. Uh, we, people are going to buy Girl Scout cookies. They like them, but it is probably also the, the most fun piece, right? Um, so we get to think about, if you think about, we have nine SKUs um, that troops could manage and, and contractually, you know, we have nine SKUs. So if we're going to retire a SKU, we have to look at the data and say, not just which one is the, the, the lowest seller, but which one might be contributing the least to incremental growth in a sale. So you might have, let's just say, for instance, of the nine SKUs, you have five chocolates and four non-chocolates, right? You, let's just say the four non-chocolates were the lowest sellers. That's not true. Let's just say they were. You would not want to retire those four and have nine chocolate cookies, right? Because you have to think about incremental growth. What 
What, what's the customer going to do? And we do a lot of data and research, not just about something as simple as chocolate or non-chocolate. What about fruit or non-fruit, peanut butter or not peanut butter, sandwich or not sandwich, coated or not coated? And you think about in allergens, we have some that are vegan and some that are kosher. So we have to really get that right mix of how do you get incremental growth so that instead of buying just three packages of your favorites, which it is probably not a surprise uh, that the big three are named so for a reason. It's going to be the Thin Mint, then the Peanut Butter Patty Tagalong, then the Caramel Delight Samoa. Okay. Those are the big three for a reason. So we don't just sell those three for a reason, right? Because you want to add on that. You could get those three and then you're like, but I want that citrusy spark of the lemon or lemonade or lemon up. So um, we have to use a lot of data. Not It's not as simple as what's not selling well. Um, we have to do incremental growth kind of data. Uh, and it's really interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. It would be, be amazing to, to be able to observe kind of the, the tasting process as well. Um, that's it's wonderful. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. We've had some duds and we've had some winners. And of course, how, what, what's difficult is how do you separate your preference, your personal preference mm-hmm. in those moments from what will be good for the whole? So you have to think about the entire country is purchasing these cookies but what I like is this thing, this flavor profile, this interesting mix. Uh, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult when you really fall in love with one and it does not come to fruition in the market. Yeah. And I guess to some degree, how does that happen, right? Because on the one hand, you're obviously looking at data that helps indicate that. But then, yes, you have, you know, and I don't know how many people are on the committee, but personal preferences, right? And, you know, so it, I'm not surprised to hear you say that as, as having a servant leadership approach, you're able to separate personal preference from public good, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not always the case for a leader. So yeah, how does that play out in the actual decision-making process? Uh, you know, on the, the cookie committee. Yeah, and it's not just with tasting the cookie, it's with naming the cookie, the coloring, the packaging of the cookie, the shape of the cookie and the rollout. So. I have a personal preference on all of those things. So we'll get to the, you know, the top five names. We'll get to the top five packaging images. And I've got a personal preference. And, and guess what? So do all the other people on the right. committee. And oftentimes it does not align with my personal preference. So um, it is hard to separate. And I think you bring up a really good point. When we talk about innovation um, and strategy, when we think about things that are scalable, we have to pick people Um, that make these decisions that can step out, get off the runway. Because being on the runway means I like this flavor and I think it works for me or this system for a cookie booth works for my troop, right? But if we can get up to that 10,000 foot level and say, but what would be good for the whole? And it is interesting and difficult to find people that can do that. You Mm -hmm. have to step outside of your anecdotal experience of life, your own lens, which is hard to do, almost sometimes impossible because we can't take our lens off. We can't pretend it doesn't exist, Um, but we have to stop and really look at all the other perspectives. And when when we look at innovation in our council, we have a small committee of people that really um, are, are, are here to look at our local innovation and I pick people, not just that are on the leadership team, not the C-suite, but people can, that can stop and get to that 10,000 foot level and say, but what would be good for the whole? How do I remove just my opinion from this? My opinion matters and that I get to sit here and offer, here's what I think. But at the end of the day, what I think is just one tiny impression. And I think what really good leadership is, is stopping to say, but what I think doesn't trump what everyone else thinks or what the data says. And sometimes that's really hard. 
as you look out maybe over the next, first question is over the next kind of 12 months, 24 months or so. And then second part is if you look out maybe five years from now, when you think about the continued evolution and innovation within the Girl Scouts, what would you like to see? I would love to see more robust e-commerce. When we think about how intuitive software can be and artificial intelligence, there's so much more we can be doing. And we're spoiled when we get that with Stitch Fix and Plated and Amazon Prime. And um, by all means, I would love to see Girl Scouts be able to fit that kind of, you know, that, that kind of consumer expectation when it comes to uh, a Girl Scout experience. Now for consumers, it means a cookie buying experience. Um, and what if when you went to purchase a package of cookies, you could either customize the, the, the exterior la labeling? What if you could pick some sort of custom label? What if you could pick a custom cookie? What if you could pick a flavor profile? Um, or what if, you know, it, at, a, at a bare minimum, what if when you went to purchase a package of cookies, it said, you know, based on your purchase of a peanut butter sandwich, we think you would like the peanut butter patty and here's why. So that would be, a, you know, at a bare minimum, some software and e-commerce. It's look, as, as you probably know, it's not cheap and it's not easy, right? That's the consumer experience. But when I think about internally in, inside the mission of Girl Scouting, when I think about some of those experiences that I have come to expect as a consumer, all three of those I just mentioned, Stitch Fix, Plated, and Amazon Prime. It's to my doorstep. I get to have a say in how the experience goes. And it's a little bit of an experience, that unboxing, right? Like I, there's an experience with that. And COVID has now lent itself to this, this doorstep kind of experience. How do we make something feel gratifying and good when you get it in a box? And I think there's a lot of runway in Girl Scouting. We are just now um, dabbling in what would it look like for a troop leader to get badges in a box for their, for their troop. Uh, and we're piloting some of that already. It, again, it's not cheap and it's not easy. Uh, and so, you know, the infrastructure is hard, right? It's easier to have the great idea, harder to execute, uh, more expensive to execute, but we're already piloting those kind of things. And it's the ideas that are not only great, but scalable that could really transform an organization like Girl Scouts. And those are the kind of ideas locally we are trying to um, cultivate and, and work on. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I know for our own part, again, we, we purchased them and we're, I'm, we'd be very, very excited, especially our four-year-old son, if he could customize some of the flavor profiles and, right. and colors in the cookies. So, right, right. Oh, that's perfect. I, I am not, don't put words in my mouth. I'm not promising that's coming tomorrow. <laughs> I'm understand. saying, if, you know, if I'm dreaming big on, on what do consumers like and what would I like to see, I would love to see the marriage of, you know, the cookie innovation team offering that and what consumers really love to have. Yeah. 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 That's wonderful. Well, one last question for you. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we have a six-year-old who will be joining the Girl Scouts uh, in the fall. So again, your, your personal story is amazing and your leadership of the Girl Scouts uh, is tremendous, right? And your, the ability to help lead the organization, you know, especially over the last 12 months to pivot is tremendous. So if there's one piece of advice you could provide to young children, boys and girls out there as they kind of, you know, we emerge into, you know, hopeful, hopefully some renewed sense of normalcy, just guidance on life, innovation, strength, you know, yeah, what would that be? Yeah, oh, such a good question. I would say ultimately, and of course, as, as children are younger, uh, this advice is a little more for the parents, but as they get older, you know, they, they need to lean into this. It's uh, take the leap or allow them to take the leap. 
And so when it comes to children, uh, first of all, the, the social emotional intelligence piece, the social emotional connection piece cannot be overstated how important it is in their lives uh, and in their happiness. There's very clear data uh, that the children um, that, are, that are struggling most with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal ideation are the ones that are the least connected socially and emotionally. Um, and COVID has not helped that, right? So um, organizations like the Girl Scouts or other ways you can get kids connected to other kids in a way that's not just reliant on technology, that is critical. Uh, there is something magical that happens. And I will fully admit, I was not outdoorsy uh, when I took this job. I had never, you know, camped. I had never, you know, put a tent up by myself. Um, and then I, all of a sudden I find myself leading an organization that's got four camps and that's kind of a deal. We have all these badges. I better figure this out. Uh, and I love it so much now. Five years later, you know, I'm visiting national parks and I'm, I'm looking at the stars and I'm figuring out all of these space science badges. And I love it so much. But what I love the most, more than anything on paper, you know, I, I, I help lead a troop now, a local troop, because it helps keep me connected to the mission. And it's just, frankly, a lot of fun. When we go to camp, you know, we um, tell the kids, you know, don't bring your cell phone or, or keep them in your bags. I don't want to see them. And it's truly the only time these kids are without that, that piece of technology attached to them. So at first they grumble a little bit, oh, you know, Miss Beth won't let me get my phone out. Um, and then we go for a hike. And then we light a campfire and then we're singing songs. And I will, I promise you five years ago, I was like, I don't know what this singing thing is. I'm not doing it. I'm not, that's not my jam. I'm not singing in front of people. I don't sing songs. I don't know what that means. And there is nothing more magical in my life now than sitting around a campfire, singing campfire songs with girls. Nothing more magical. Uh, like it removes this barrier that you know, it, it truly, something magical happens. You, you put these eye rolling teenagers um, in front of a campfire and not let them uh, post about it on social. They have to connect with the human sitting next to them and pure magic happens. So when I think about what guidance would I give to kids or parents, um, create spaces where that magic can happen. And the kids will grumble a little bit. Kids, guess what? Don't always know what's best for them, themselves. So they're going to put up a little bit of a fight. I, I, have to put, I have to battle these fights in my household too. They're going to put up a little bit of a fight, but pure magic really does happen. And allow for some of that grit to come through. Uh, the last story, I'll close with one last story. I could talk and talk about our mission. Uh, I, I did our high, our high ropes course um, last summer, or two, I guess COVID was last summer, two summers ago, the summer of 19 with our, our girls. And um, it's 40 feet in the air and it's all these obstacles and there's only one way down at the end. You do, you know, um, you have to zip line down at the end. And I got, they were all terrified. Um, they, they weren't sure if they wanted to do it. And I said, hey, you know, I'll go first. Okay. And I don't know if you know, I only have one hand and I really don't think about it very frequently. And I didn't think about it that day. So I got to the top of the first pole. I climbed to the top 40 feet in the air and you have to manage two carabiners at once to not fall to your death. Uh, and all of a sudden I really thought about it. Uh, all of a sudden it was critically important to have a little more dexterity than I had. Okay. And I almost had a panic attack at the top of this pole. Like, what was I thinking? How am I going to manage this? How am I holding on? How am I going to do this? And the girls were on the ground, just cheering me on. You got it, Miss Beth. You got it. You got it. And I was so slow. I was sweating through my clothes. Like it was white knuckled, terrified. I truly I truly was terrified in that moment. Now I wasn't, guess what? We've never had anyone fall to their death. I didn't either. Uh, I sort of felt like I would in that moment. Um, and then I got to the very end. I was slow. It had to be painful to watch. 
Um, and I zip lined down at the end and it was all smiles. And then I saw this group of teenagers do the same thing. They got to the top of the first pole. They were terrified. They were trembling. They were shaking. Some of them were crying. Some of them didn't want to do it. And then they got through and they were smiling coming down at the mm -hmm. end. And I got pictures of it. And to see that transformation and you think about that muscle in that moment, what it meant to have courage, what it meant to have grit, it's the same muscle they will use when they are negotiating for a fair salary, when they are leading an organization through a pandemic and they don't know what to do. It's the same muscle. And so we get to see it play out physically, but my gosh, my advice is let your kids have those moments, force them to have those moments because they have to have grit to get through life. And the more we can give them uh, some of those muscles, the more we can give them exercises, uh, times to, um, to, to stress those muscles a little bit, mm -hmm. gosh, you know, the more resilience they're going to have. Wonderful. Well, first and foremost, again, as a father, as a former Girl Scout, um, thank you so much for your leadership. And, and again, an absolutely wonderful conversation, Beth. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, so for all our listeners, we will have link to purchase cookies. If you'd like, they are wonderful. Uh, we go through far too many packets uh, than I should admit, but they're great. Um, and then I did lie to you, Beth, one last question for you, or I guess a two part last okay. question. Um, what is your favorite camp song and will you sing some for us? Oh gosh. <laughs> uh, my, my favorite camp song uh, is called On My Honor. And I, am, I truly am the worst singer. Uh, some people have gotten the benefit of hearing it and they, they all agree uh, because I started playing the guitar in the last year with COVID. That was one of my COVID hobbies that I've learned. Uh, again, only having one hand, it was a little more difficult than I imagined. There's people that make it look really easy uh, and it's, it's not. Uh, so, but on my honor, I'll, I'll, I'll sing the first stanza. How about that? But That's I, perfect. I, I just want to warn people, I don't sing on key and I guess what? I'm fine with it. So on my honor, I will try. So that's how we go. Yeah. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Beth. I really, really appreciate it. Um, so for all our listeners, please do go to the links and purchase cookies and uh, we will have the next podcast out pretty soon. Thanks again, yes. Beth. We well, thanks for it. having me, Kavi. Uh, I appreciate it so much. And thank you for being uh, man enough to be a Girl Scout. So we, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. We hope you found this episode of the Baton Salon Valuable as Beth Shelton, CEO of the Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa, discussed the innovation and inspiration. If you like what you heard, please give us a review and a rating and send your comments and ideas via email at bg at batonglobal.com. Thank you and be well. <laughs>